0: Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, in today's podcast, we're going to be hearing a message from Pastor Kirk as he shares from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1-13, with a message entitled, Mystery and Mission. Now, if you live in Northwest Arkansas and you're looking for a church home, let me encourage you to check us out. You can go to calvaryfayetteville.com and find information and ways to contact us. You can call us at 479-442-4634 or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Again, we would love to have you worship with us. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and we begin our worship service at 1030 on Sunday mornings. There's also a Sunday school time, a time to go through the Word with the Gospel Project curriculum. We'd love to have you for either one of those. Again, we're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians in our series called Rags to Riches with a message entitled Mystery and Mission. Let's listen together.
1: And now we seek to continue our worship through the ministry of God's Word as we read it. I want all of you, if you would, to... Uh, Please open a Bible in front of you. It's so important that you lay eyes on the words yourself. All of them will not be on the screen by any means, and especially in a passage such as what we're dealing with today, it'll be helpful to you to be able to look down and see the words that we're talking about. Before we read, I want to tell you a story about a boy who grows up in a wealthy family in a major city, of a sophisticated culture. As a child, he is immersed in the orthodox religion of his country, and he attends one of the most well-known worship centers in the land. In that setting, he becomes a disciple under one of the most influential leaders of his traditions. He becomes a zealot for his faith, passionately devouring its teachings and passionately pursuing its enemies. And then something amazing happens. Somehow he becomes convinced that the very persons he has been opposing were right about their faith. And though they are small in number and despised by his religious leaders and culture, this young man joins the ranks of those he had so zealously opposed. He enters into a period of intense study, praying and fasting in order to fulfill a calling he believes he now has to take his new faith to others. In subsequent years, although his convictions and his actions cost him his reputation, his comforts, his freedom, and ultimately his life, this man of faith never wavers from his calling. Do you know his name? Well, his name was Jibril Al Amraki. He grew up in Atlanta, attending a well known Baptist church before becoming a Muslim and joining allies of Osama bin Laden's Al Qaeda. And in 1997, he died while participating in a jihadist attack intended to plant a flag for Islam in Kashmir, India. Yes, you thought it was Paul, and so did I when I first read it. And certainly the story fits, matches very much the Apostle Paul's experience, though in the opposite direction. Now, before I gave you that name, you probably assumed it was the Apostle Paul, not in the Muslim extremist. The parallels are so much alike. Each were from quite a different cultural and religious background and eventually felt a call to promote. Each was willing to study, to strive, and to sacrifice for the calling he believed his God had placed upon his life But we also realize that these conflicted callings cannot both be of God. One is genuine, and one is counterfeit. One is truly from the one truly living God. The other is a doctrine of demons. And maybe it's good to remember this on the day after 9 11 the celebration of 20 years of 9 11 we see from uh, not only that story but we're going to see from today's text and take a closer look at the call of god on the apostle paul's life and see from this how a true calling from god what it looks like and how it impacts one's life and heart now These are 13 verses. It's not the story of Paul's conversion or his call to ministry. But he is reflecting on this ministry that God had called him to and placed him into. And so, rather than reading all 13 verses of uh, the first part of chapter 3, uh, you'll notice that it's divided into two paragraphs. I have two points for the message. We'll read the first paragraph, share the first point, read the second paragraph, and I'll share with you the second point. The first point is this the mystery. The mystery. And it's verses 1 through 6. Now, listen to Paul's words to the Ephesian believers. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord, and we thank God for it, do we not? Well, you need to notice something that's taking place in Paul's letter here. And I think maybe sometimes when we read through this, it causes a little bit of confusion. He begins verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 with the words, for this reason. And then he kind of wanders off into explaining some things. And then he comes back in verse 14, which will begin our text for next Sunday, with the very same words, for this reason. And he gives to us, he prays a prayer on behalf of these Ephesian believers. Now I'm going to say to you that the Apostle Paul, when he started back up in verse 1, his intention was to pray his prayer there. For this reason, I'm going to bow my knees before God on your behalf. But as he gets started, he still hasn't gotten over what he had to say back in chapter 2. Now, do you remember, folks, this is, this is message number 16 of Ephesians. And we just now got to chapter 3. So we spent a little bit of time in chapter 1 and a little bit of time in chapter 2, probably a lot more time than you would have preferred. Amen? You don't have to say amen just because I asked for that. I w- <laughs> I was just trying to draw out who I need to be aware of and watch out for, all right? Uh, But he hasn't gotten over it. In chapter 1, he talks about the greatness of God's plan, how we were chosen by the Father and how we were redeemed by the Son and how we've been been, uh, sealed by the Spirit of God. And then he goes into prayer for that and praying for these believers. Then he gets to chapter 2 and he reminds them that, that all men are equal. Whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they are rich or poor, whether they wear masks or never wear masks, whether they're vaccinated or not vaccinated, everybody is lost in his sins. Everybody is dead by reason of his sins. Everybody is like a dead fish in a fast-flowing stream. They can't fight the current. They have no spiritual power to fight the current. They, are, they walk according to the course of this age. They go wherever the water takes them. But then he said in verse 4 of chapter 2 but god who is rich in mercy has quickened us that word means made us alive he has made us alive he has made alive what was dead that was all god's initiative not ours dead people don't make themselves alive only God does, and he made us alive, and he goes down to probably the best-known verses in all the book of Ephesians, where he says, For by grace are you saved, through faith, a faith that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and it is not of works, lest anybody should boast. And then he says, we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, we are his new creation, and we are saved not by good works, but we are saved to do good works. And then he closes out the second half of chapter 2 with this, this great truth that Jews and Gentiles are all on an equal footing as new people in Christ Jesus. That this is a, a new creation. This is a third creation. Everybody in the world were either Jews or Gentiles. But those who have been born again by the grace of God, they are a new race of being that has never existed before. This is the church. And to these Ephesian believers who were Gentiles, these were encouraging words because early in the history of the church, these Gentiles did not know where they stood they knew that the gospel had a jewish savior and the gospel and the church was was birthed in the land of the bible and, and now it's we hear of people being saved and we've trusted christ but where are we and Paul is saying to them in chapter 2 you are all one in Christ Jesus the middle wall of partition the wall that, that divided Jews and Gentiles has been torn down the veil that separated God from you has been ripped from top to bottom and now as Gentiles you don't just go to the court of the Gentiles when you come to the temple the dwelling place of God you don't stand on the outside looking in all of that has changed and you have the same access to God that the Jews have in fact as born-again believers you have an access Jew and Gentile alike that went beyond anything the Old Testament temple ever offered you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and so now as he begins to offer up this prayer for these believers a prayer for spiritual strength he starts for this reason I Paul for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then the parenthesis starts, and he pauses and shifts gears, and he goes back to that wonderful mystery of grace, and he talks about it. And he says, it is a mystery. What does that mean? As you and I think of the word mystery, which he uses in verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. Oftentimes, we conjure up something else. It's something we don't understand. It's some kind of riddle that has to be solved. Maybe when I say mystery, you think of Agatha Christie or Inspector Poirot or one of those other weird shows that plays on PBS on Sunday nights. My wife loves them. You think of those kind of mysteries. Or around our house, if there's something we don't understand, somehow started by one of my granddaughters, we say, it's a big mystery. Things we don't understand. Things that don't make full sense. Things that are like a riddle to be solved. But that's not what a mystery is in the New Testament. The word doesn't mean something not understood. Let me give you a couple of definitions. I believe it will be on the screen. A mystery in the New Testament context and wording is something that was once hidden, not revealed, but has now been revealed. In other words, when Paul refers to a mystery, he's talking about something you can clearly understand. It used to be hidden, but it is hidden no longer. Or in other words, something that is beyond natural knowledge of our senses. Something that you could not know through your Sight and smell and taste and feel and hearing. But something that has been opened up by divine revelation to the spirit. To your spiritual understanding. But in either case, it is not something hidden and inaccessible to us. It's something we can know and be sure of. And what is that mystery? Verse 6 tells us. This mystery... Is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's going back and, and reminding us of what he had to say in chapter 2. He's saying, are you sure that you got it? That you Ephesians, you are of equal standing with the Jews. You are now fellow citizens, he said in chapter 2, of the same family, a holy temple that is a dwelling place of God. This was the mystery that in the Old Testament, nobody could ever see coming. In the Old Testament, it was hidden. What God's plan was to open up his gospel and his truth to Gentiles, that they would be on an equal basis with Jesus the Jews. And then if you look at verse 7 of our text, this is what he says about the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He said, we are fellow heirs. That means Jews and Gentiles are brothers and sisters. Isn't that what it means to be a fellow heir? It has to do with inheritance That Gentiles are going to receive as much of an inheritance as the Jews are awaiting themselves. He said we are members of the same body, literally, fellow body members, a term probably coined by Paul himself, one new man. One body, not two different people, not two different men sitting in church together, but one man in the eyes of God. One body, the same body of Christ. You are fellow heirs, you are members of the same body, and you are partakers of the same promise. Of all the covenant promises of God to his people in the Old Testament he's saying to the Jews in the New Testament guess what you're not on the outside looking in on that either you have the same access to the Father that they have you have the same promise of a home in heaven that they were given so you have become fellow heirs signifying their inheritance members of the same body and partakers of the same promise now understand all that is based on follow me now a double union Jews and Gentiles are in union with each other and they are in union with God it's a double relationship and when you illustrate God as a triangle as a triune being father son and spirit and when you think of that triangle you think of Jews and Gentiles or black and white, or whatever distinction you and I make between people, the bottom line is this. The closer we move to God, the closer what? The closer we get to each other. It always works that way. And that's what John said in First John chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to these words. Speaking of Christ, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It is a double union. Our relationship, our fellowship with each other, and our fellowship with God. The closer we get to God, the closer we are to all other true believers, regardless of how different from us they are. Now, friends, take note in view of this miraculous togetherness, follow me now. We're getting ready to go to point number two. In view of this miraculous togetherness of all men, Jews and Gentiles, all people in Christ Jesus, there is no room for separation. There's no room for separation. Understand. Those who build up walls that divide people, that separate people. Those who emphasize differences and say, I'm no longer going to go to that church because they say we need to wear masks. Or I'm going to go over here because somebody offended me or didn't, didn't acknowledge me. And when we begin to look at all these things that make personal offenses and separate people, Understand, that is of the devil. It is demonic. Because Jesus, in Christ, there is the tearing down of walls of separation. Now, I understand that between various kinds of doctrinal beliefs, when it comes to the Word of God, there's reason for distinctiveness, and there's reason at times for separation. But understand, there's not nearly as many Reasons for separation in the church that God has placed there. Most of them are man made. When the Bible talks about us building walls, it's talking about building walls of separation to protect the truth, to protect the people of God. Listen now, not to protect my personal preferences. That's demonic, it is satanic, it is not. Of the Lord so this mystery is that God is tearing down those separating walls God is through Christ uh, is tearing down those things that segregate and separate people division and self-interest is never from the Lord so Paul talks about that mystery as he Gives them this big parenthesis. Before he prays a prayer. He has to remind them. This is the great mystery we now have. That this truth. That God has made us one. And now he goes to the second paragraph. Verses 7-13. And I've called this. The ministry. Of the mystery. Or the mission. Of the mystery. How are we to handle this truth in our church in our lives in our families how are we to administer this truth in the world I take up my reading with verse 7 follow along please of this gospel and he mentioned the gospel remember way back in verse 2 this gospel gospel of God's grace of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you, Not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And again, this is the word of the Lord. Well, there's no one like Paul when it comes to writing and giving to us spiritual truth. Sometimes he gets very creative in the way that he writes. And he does that in his creative use of the Greek language here in this paragraph now I'm gonna bring something to your attention only because to me it's humorous the Bible has humor in it now oftentimes we miss that but I mean let me ask you how many times and how many places can you read of a donkey talking to a man now that's a true story that's not a fable or a fairy tale it's right there in the Old Testament I love it when Ezra is explaining to how how God had given him this message. And the Bible begins to talk about Ezra, the son of so-and-so, 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 the son of of so-and-so. And gives about seven or eight names that you can't even begin to pronounce. And then it says, this Ezra, as though how many other Ezras could it be? The Bible has humor. And it's hidden here in this passage in verse 8 where we read Paul's words I am the very least of all saints. Now if you and I were Greek scholars and we were reading this in the Greek New Testament in the original language of the New Testament Paul takes the words the word least or smallest and he adds an ending to it that is linguistically impossible. the Greek language is very precise and how you change just a little bit here or there can change the whole meaning of the word and he basically creates, makes up a word that is just linguistically impossible in the Greek language and basically it reads this way I who am the leaster leaster, I'm the leaster of everybody and I guess you could take from that then someone could be the leastest But he said, I am the very leaster of all the saints. Now, maybe he was playing off of his Greek name. You know his Greek or his Latin name was Paulus, which means little or small. And maybe he was saying, I am little by name, little in stature, morally and spiritually littler, leaster than the least of all Christians. Maybe he was saying, basically, I am small Paul. But it's very interesting of how he sees himself, who's considered to be the greatest of all the apostles, who's considered to be the prominent personage after Christ in all of the New Testament, and he said, "I'm the leaster of all the saints." Now, what was he trying to say about his position, his place, and his ministry of the gospel of the mystery? Now. Back in verse 2, he referred to his ministry as a stewardship, the stewardship of the gospel of grace. Now, let me tell you something, folks. Every one of you who claims the name of Jesus Christ, you too are a steward of the mystery of the gospel. What is a steward? It's someone who is given responsibility of something that belongs to someone else, Okay, he's saying this gospel, this gospel of grace is not mine. It belongs to God, but he made me a steward of it. And a steward is someone who is to use wisely to guard and protect what has been entrusted to them because one day there's going to be a day of accounting, a day that I'll have to answer to God. For what he's given to me. God has given to you the gospel of grace. How have you protected it? How have you lived up to its calling? How have you sought to advance it? How have you sought to protect it against false teaching? How have you shared it with your family and your friends? Because one day, guess what? You're going to have to give account for your stewardship of the gospel of grace. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, let me just list about four or five things that he said about what it means to be a minister of God's grace. In verse 7, he said, I was made a minister. This was not my choosing. It was not something that I aspired to. He said, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, there are those that specifically God calls to vocational ministry. God placed that call on my life when I was 16 years old. I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt I would never, ever find fulfillment in life doing anything else in the world except being a minister of the gospel that God had called me to. I was made a minister when I was 16. But minister with a small M, like I've said, every believer has been made a minister of the gospel as well. Okay, It's something God did. It's not something that we chose. It's not something that we aspired or that we attained or that we earned. God makes his ministers. Verse 8, he makes his ministers to preach the unsearchable riches of, of Christ. Look at verse 8. To me, though I am the leaster of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What does unsearchable riches mean? It means riches that cannot be tracked. Riches that cannot be traced. It means that these riches are inexplorable. They are untraceable, they are unfathomable, they are inexhaustible, they are illimitable, they are inscrutable, they are incalculable, they are infinite. The riches of Christ are beyond human comprehension and human ability to even begin to describe, although it's our calling to do so. And not only to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 9 says, to inform the world of the church. Now, focus in with me here because this is often missed. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What was this plan? This plan when he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees in the Old Testament and separated a race of people to call his own and to call them Jews and for them to build a temple and do all these things. All these prophets, all of these priests, All of these people knew the calling of God, but they didn't, they could not see what was to be in the New Testament. One theologian explained it and illustrated it as the mountain peaks of prophecy. Imagine, if you will, some of you know exactly what this is like. You maybe are making your way west. You're going to the Rocky Mountains, somewhere to vacation there. And you're traveling across barren, flat Kansas, not sure why God ever created that state. And you get across it in some ways, you're getting towards the other side of, of Kansas, you see off in the distance what looks like some clouds rising. But as you get closer, you realize those are not clouds, those are mountain peaks. And as you get closer and closer to that range of mountains, the great Rocky Mountains, you see these different peaks. You might see Pike's Peak. You might see others. And, and beyond them and behind them, you see other yet t- taller, yet higher mountain peaks. And that's what it was like for prophets in the Old Testament. As God revealed truth to them, they could see mountain peaks of truth. They could see bits and pieces of the story. They could see, they prophesied the coming of a Messiah. They prophesied a second coming of the Messiah. In fact, they prophesied more than twice as many prophecies of the second coming as they did of the first coming. But what you cannot tell as you look at those mountain peaks is that there are vast uh, spaces of, of time and distance between the mountain peaks. You can't see how far apart they are, you don't have a perspective. And no one in the Old Testament, no prophet, truly, accurately prophesied the church. This new creation where Jews and Gentiles would all be made one in the Lord. They didn't see that. They couldn't see that. They saw things that would happen before that happened, before the church was birthed. They saw things that would happen after the church's birth, But what they didn't see was that time period between the first coming and the second coming where the church would be the predominant story of Scripture. The prophets didn't see that. And that's what he's talking about, that this was hidden. It was not revealed to them. It wasn't a a, a mystery or a riddle that had to be solved. It was just something that they were not given the capacity to see. But now we see it. And now we see the glory of that. That the Lord is, is birthing a church. And Paul saw that his mission was to enlighten all humanity about this miracle of Jews and Gentiles becoming a new humanity, a third race of people. The race of God's people. Okay? Now, as if that's not Amazing enough. We're getting close to the close. Stay with me here because this is maybe the greatest part of this mystery that will it'll mess with your mind. All right. Verse 10 that this mystery is that of declaring Christ to the cosmos. We think of our job as declaring Christ to the world. And it is. But understand. The ministry of the mystery of God is that we are doing ministry to the cosmos, to the universe. You say, wait a minute. What are you talking about there? Listen to what he said in verse 10. So that through the church, the church, the manifold wisdom, that wisdom that is beyond description, that manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Through the church, we are the players in what follows. We are the messengers we are the ministers together Jews and Gentiles alike the church this one new new race we are the ministers we are the ones who are doing the work and we are sharing the manifold wisdom of God that it might be made known manifold is a word used here in the Bible and nowhere else It means something that is varied beyond measure and in a way which surpasses all previous knowledge. We, the church, are able to administer the mystery of the gospel in a way that the prophets of old could not do, in a way that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph could never do, You have the ability to advance the cause of the the church of God, the cause of the uh, plan of God in a way that Elijah or Elisha or some other prophet could ever do. You have an understanding that Ezekiel did not have, that Jeremiah did not have. You have access to truth that Isaiah did not have, that Malachi or Zechariah or Zephaniah, or even Micah, or Joel, or Amos. You have knowledge that none of these people have. You have knowledge that even Job never had. You can see the plan of God made clear like no people that ever existed before. That we can share this manifold mystery, this wisdom, this this wisdom that is varied beyond measure and in a way that surpasses all previous knowledge thereof. And who are we broadcasting it to? Hopefully our families, our neighbors, our schoolmates, those who work alongside of us, to the whole world, to the ends of the world. But God is saying here through Paul, listen, your message doesn't stop there. Your message is a cosmic message. It's going out Into the universe and not just the universe it is going out to the spirit world now follow me here this is really going to get weird okay it's really about to get weird but it's true when the Bible talks about in the New Testament rulers and authorities principalities and powers he's talking about angels Angels. And most of the time when you read that phrase or some form of those words, the context will tell you that it's talking about fallen angels. The demons that serve Satan. The demons, the angels that joined in Lucifer's rebellion in heaven in eternity past when Lucifer decided to overthrow God and to take his throne. This anointed cherub that covered, this most beautiful and powerful of all the angels wanted God's glory. And he led a rebellion. And the Bible suggests in the book of Revelation that as many as one-third of all the angels of heaven joined in his rebellion. And he was cast down. Jesus says in his earthly ministry, in one of his teachings, he said, I saw Lucifer fall like lightning from heaven. He was cast down. Revelation says the dragons, Satan, with his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven out of the sky. The stars are often a word that's talking about the angels of heaven. So there are angels, demons today doing, fallen angels, doing the bidding of the devil. Now, oftentimes in the three or four or five times that the New Testament mentions principalities and powers it's talking about fallen angels but here it's no clear lesson or understanding whether it's good angels or bad angels those faithful to do God's bidding are those who've rebelled against God I think our lives as we minister the mystery of God the gospel of Christ, as we are faithful to do His work in this world, I think they are learning in both places. The book of Hebrews, or excuse me, 1 Peter, I won't read the verses, but it's in chapter 1, refers to faithful angels. And it refers to the gospel of Christ and the spirit of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and how we preach by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the phrase in the end of verse 12 says, things into which angels long to look. What I'm saying to you is, the angels of heaven don't know the full plan of God. They were never given all the information of how Jesus was going to have to go and suffer for our sins. No doubt that day when the father turned to the son and said, Son, it's time for you to go now. And Jesus gets up from his throne and departs from heaven. And in some way known only to God, Jesus, the creator of the universe, now becomes an embryo, a seed planted in the womb of a virgin teenage girl in Palestine. The angels, no doubt, fell silent in heaven. What is this? What's happening? And as the story of the gospel of grace unfold, unfolds, they are learning. They are, these are things they long to look into. They don't yet have the full story of how it's going to end. They are learning day by day, but they are faithful to do God's bidding. And so understand, as you administer the mystery of the gospel you are teaching by example the angels of heaven what God is doing in the world but also understand that fallen angels are watching principalities and powers the evil followers of Satan these that look for every reason to resist to revile and to revolt against the kingdom of God in this world, to seek to destroy the gospel, to seek to destroy his church. Maybe it would be helpful to imagine it like this, to imagine a cosmic drama. The theater is history. The stage is the world. The actors on the stage are the church, you and me. The writer of the drama is God, who also directs and produces the drama. And the audience are cosmic beings, rulers and authorities in the spirit world. Those in heaven learning of the greatness of the God they've always served. The demons of hell and Satan himself looking for a reason and a way and some excuse to further fight and resist and to disrupt the work of God in the world. And here is my question for you. What are the angels in the spirit world learning about the gospel by watching Calvary Baptist Church? What are they learning? What are they learning by watching you and by watching me. What are the demons of hell thinking as they watch us? They watch how we obey or disobey the commandments of the Lord. They watch as we seek to be faithful, to worship, and to gather, and to fellowship, and do what the church is supposed to do. Or they watch as we spend time doing everything but the work of God and the will of God. Are they encouraged in their rebellion that they are winning the war by watching you and watching me, by watching our church? Or are they discouraged in their war against God? Beloved, you and I are to make it our job to love God so fully, to follow Him so passionately, to love His plan for the church, and even more than that, the people of the church, more than we ever have before, so that we can teach the angels of heaven this is what the gospel does in human lives, and to show the demons of hell You just as well quit now because you're on the losing side and we will love God till he calls us home. The scholar John Stott says that the Christian church the Christian church is the graduate school for angels. This is his word. These were his words. It is through the old creation the creation of the universe, that God reveals His glory to humans. But it is through the new creation, the church, that He reveals His wisdom to angels. To angels. As Paul summarizes this amazing teaching and comes to the close of his parentheses in verses 11 and 12, listen to what he says. This was according to the eternal purpose. God purposed all of this. He purposed it. That was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have what? Boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him he's getting ready to pray a prayer for these people and he said I have boldness I have access and I have confidence through my faith in Christ that I can go to him in prayer so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering remember he's in prison in Rome I'm suffering this for you don't be discouraged by that the devil isn't winning this is all your glory and it's all to strengthen you to face whatever he has for you. I'll leave you with this. All of this demands a view of the church that should be so high that it challenges belief. The church today, as an organized body of Christ, is looked so down on by the world, and rightly so, we deserve a lot of it, but it is even looked down on by the people who are a part of the church. There's such an emphasis today on not having to gather as the church. Let's learn how to be the church. I understand the meaning by that. We need to be the church. But you can't be the church without gathering as the church. You can't do it. But somehow, through the silliness of all of this, of a handful of people, getting together, that somehow God is at work in the world through this right here to accomplish His divine purposes. We should have such a high view of the church that it challenges belief. The church is a product of God's reconciling work and will in fact be an agent of the ultimate cosmic reconciliation of the world. And it's a mystery that keeps the angels watching. I believe that we've got to recognize, respect, and even revere the immense centrality of the church in the plan of God. The church is central to history. It is the only multiracial, multinational, third race created by anyone. It's created by God. We are a new creation. It supersedes all political, social, and religious systems of the world. Only the church will survive history. America will not survive history. The Islamic world will not survive history. Communism will not survive history. Only the church will survives history it's central it is central to the gospel that the complete gospel is not just receive Jesus Christ and go your merry way check it off of your list you're now gonna go to heaven when you die but God saves you out of your sin but he saves you into something he saves you into his church it's a part of his plan for the ages The church is central to the gospel. And third, the church is central to Christian living. You cannot obey scripture. You cannot please God with your life. You cannot live an independent Lone Ranger Christian life and be acceptable to God. It doesn't work. Everything in the New Testament is geared towards the church, not the individual. God wants you to be a part of the church. Paul's gospel was christ but it was christ and the church let's pray father thank you for the truth of your word thank you for this these great afterthoughts of a great apostle and father i pray that you should make the truth so real to our hearts so real to our lives that we cannot discount or be discouraged in the message but they will be faithful to our calling. I pray, I ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.
0: Our hearts desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.